Hello everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to add a quick note that I'm going to be sharing a family tree for the Hasmoneans to accompany this episode. As I was doing final editing, I realized that even though we're basically looking at just four generations and then the Herodians butt in, well, they're four very active generations and it's easy to lose track of who's who, especially as the names repeat. So hopefully, the excellent chart put together by Shalvi Publishing and hosted online by the Jewish Women's Archive will help clarify things. As an added bonus, the chart, which will be going out on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Popular History, that's popular with an E, the Pope pun, uh, shows the real mess things turn into when the Herodians take over and marry in in subsequent generations. I don't delve into that part much at all, but feel free to use that as a springboard for further research elsewhere, including checking out the Jewish Women's Archive's own in-house podcast called Can We Talk, which you can find fairly quickly at jwa.org. Or, of course, I'm going to link to that in the show notes for this episode. With that, on with the show. <laughs> Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Domine, Dona this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. My name is Greg, and this is episode Ot Point Thirteen. Prepare the way. In complete honesty, I do think you could get by without this one and still put together some fairly authentic Pope colored glasses without having any real idea of what happened with the Hasmoneans. Personally, I think it's interesting to really be able to connect the dots between the situation as it stood in the books of the Maccabees and the later New Testament, which is why I took the time to put this episode together, but I definitely don't think that's required listening if you're really just here for Catholic worldbuilding. Of course, if you listen to our Rome episodes, then you've already got some extra info, so we'll just carry on with that sort of thing. Now, so far, our Catholic worldbuilding episodes have really been building two worlds that of the First Testament, aka the Old Testament, and that of Rome. They had a little bit of crossover thanks to the Maccabees allying with the Romans and uh, Pompey listing the region among his conquests, but this is where those streams really start to come together, a process that by most measures will carry on through the years, culminating in most accounts with the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, or perhaps in the proclamation of Nicene Christianity as the official state religion of the Roman Empire under Emperor Theodosius in 380 AD. Either way, the Roman Tiber and the Judean Jordan are the two main cultural streams that flow together into the papacy. And uh, I list those not only because, you know, I couldn't find a particularly dominant stream to represent Greece, um, but also because they do have in my view, a bit more influence, although the Greek influence is not to be understated. In any case, this is the story of how the Jordan and the Tiber really began to flow together in the final century or so before Christ. And yes, unless otherwise stated, all dates will still be before Christ, though that's going to change real soon. 
Of course, as with so many things in history, the merging really was a gradual process. Like I mentioned, back in the time of the Maccabees and the formative revolt, Judas Maccabeus had concluded a treaty with the Romans who were already projecting their power in the region, having defeated the Seleucids under Antiochus the Great, and having prevented that Antiochus' son, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, from completely defeating his rivals the Ptolemies in Egypt through diplomatic pressure. That was the circle with the consuls sort of thing. Don't step out of this or it's war. Um, in 139, the Roman Senate had recognized the Jewish state, then still under Simon Maccabeus, who, along with Judas, was one of the original Maccabee brothers who had revolted with their father, Mattathias, back in 167. It was through Simon the Maccabee, uh, Maccabee or Maccabeus being a nickname, that's Hammer, originally given to Judas, but then applied to all the brothers and even their supporters, it was through Simon that the Hasmonean dynasty of the future generations grew. That name, Hasmonean, comes from the brothers' great great-grandfather, who was probably named something like Hashmonai in Hebrew. There are only source for this, Josephus. It really only gives the name in Greek. I do think it would be nice to do a bio of Josephus sometime, but we'll see if time allows. Simon is succeeded, both as high priest and as Hasmonean leader, by his third son, John, since both he and his first two sons were killed at a banquet by his son-in-law. Ptolemy, son of Abibus. Now, first Maccabees indicates Ptolemy tried to have John assassinated as well, for reasons that I'm officially going to classify as unclear, but it's reasonable to think that if Simon and all of his sons were to die tragically, there might be an easy enough case to be made that perhaps his son-in-law, good old Ptolemy, son of Abibus, uh, might be able to succeed him. In any event, if that had been the plan, it didn't work out because, well, John survives for one reason or another, and he's now ruling under the regnal name John Hyrcanus for some other reason that's also uh, shrouded in antiquity. That's a phrase we'll be seeing plenty of in this episode. Now, a couple years into his reign, John Hyrcanus finds Jerusalem besieged by the current Seleucid king Antiochus VII Cydates. Uh, this Antiochus is actually the seventh Seleucid king since our old buddy Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes had been reigning 25 years earlier. The Seleucids had fallen on hard times, as evidenced especially by the fact that they no longer controlled Seleucia, their former capital, named after a guy who was the founder both of that city and of the Seleucid Empire as a whole. At its height, the Seleucid Empire had been the greatest of the successor states to Alexander's empire, stretching from Anatolia in modern Turkey to India in, well, modern India. At this point, the Seleucids were mostly limited to modern Syria, having been substantially reduced by a rising Parthia. But the young Hasmonean, well, it's not a kingdom, I guess, it's a the young Hasmonean prince, to, uh, the young Hasmonean somethingdom, wasn't quite free from the crumbling Seleucids yet, as evidenced perhaps by the fact that I'm calling it a somethingdom rather than a kingdom. Though Antiochus VII Sidetes is marked as the last Seleucid king of any stature, which is at least true for our purposes, he was nevertheless a real threat at the moment, what with all the besieging Jerusalem and whatnot. Josephus relates that John resorted to looting King David's tomb to pay off Antiochus, which couldn't have been a popular move, 
especially given that one criticism the Hasmoneans would always face through their history was that they weren't from the royal line of the house of David, so why were they ruling Judea anyways? It was to be ruled by the house of David forever. Now, that really was a fair enough question, though really, even with that bribe from David's tomb, what John Hyrcanus was doing at this point could scarcely count as ruling, since he was obligated to serve as a sub-commander in King Antiochus's reclamation war against the Parthians, which, I should note, was actually pretty successful, though a lot of the gains were short-lived and, uh, well, King Antiochus was killed, which probably hadn't been part of his master plan. Freed up by the death of his overlord and returning to his kingdom, the Hasmonean something, John Hyrcanus's next project was taking advantage of the disintegrating Seleucid Empire to expand the Hasmonean somethingdom, and he was able to more than double the territory under Hasmonean control. So I'd say that went pretty well, all things considered, even though it seems he had to draw more from the first bank of David's tomb to have enough money to pay for enough mercenaries to get the job done. I do bet Solomon's tomb had a very nice reserve too, though I couldn't find any mention of that in the record. So maybe they're keeping that on hold. I don't know. In 113, John Hyrcanus invaded Samaria, which was mostly in the West Bank portion of modern Palestine. The Samaritans called for aid from the Seleucid king, Antiochus IX, and I'm just going to spell this, C-Y-Z-I-C-E-N-U-S, uh, Cizicanus? who sent some help, but not enough. At this point, the Seleucids really weren't what they used to be. The city of Samaria fell, as did the city of Shechem. Samaritans were then forced into slavery, and non-Jews, which almost certainly included Samaritans from John's perspective, were forced to adopt Jewish customs. This was an innovation that actually wasn't particularly popular with religious conservatives, but they did have something to cheer for with the destruction of the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, since the temple in Jerusalem was the only approved temple in their eyes. Thank you very much. Now, in addition to these conquests in the north, John pushed east, taking the city of Medeba in modern Jordan across the river Jordan. He also took a big bite out of the land of our old friends the Edomites to the south. You know, that tribe named after the red lentil stew, the descendants of Esau, those Edomites. Now, all good things must come to an end, and John Hyrcanus was, on the whole, definitely a good thing for the Hasmonean somethingdom. For one thing, at this point they were stronger than their theoretical overlords, the Seleucids, and one advantage of being stronger than your theoretical overlord is that you don't have to pay taxes if you don't want to. Which, as it turns out, the Hasmoneans didn't want to. They did, however, want to start minting their own coins, which they proceeded to do. Now, nearing his death, John Hyrcanus determined that the civil authority would go to his wife, while the high priesthood, which the Maccabees tended to hold alongside that civil authority, would go to his son, Judas Aristobulus. According to Josephus, after John's death in 104, Judas Aristobulus decided that he didn't like the plan of having Mon run the country while he carried on as high priest only, so he had his mother imprisoned and starved to death. Lovely. And yeah, to add insult to injury, no, Josephus doesn't give this mother a name, so we don't have it. Judas, the mother-murdering son, who had commanded the siege of Samaria during the reign of his father, now decided to try his own hand at territorial expansion, 
so he went and successfully beat up on the Etrurians, who, scholars suppose, probably lived north of the Sea of Galilee. Like his father before him, Judas insisted that this conquered people adopt Jewish customs, including circumcision. Which, ouch. Now, Judas Aristobulus managed to do a lot in a little time, mostly due to the fact that he looked around and saw that they really were independent these days, so he went ahead and proclaimed himself king, upgrading the somethingdom to a kingdom. This, we're told, was accepted by the Sadducees and the Essenes, but apparently the Pharisees were apoplectic. Oh, what's that? The who, the who, and the who? Also, oh, these three groups are important for understanding some of the context of the Second Testament. Uh, for example, Paul was a Pharisee, so let's take a moment to introduce them now. And I want to emphasize that this is a very cursory and incomplete introduction, with too much of a focus on Christian analogs, but, well, that's kind of what we're here for. The three groups, write this down, were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Now, Pliny the Elder was under the impression that these divisions within Judaism had been around for thousands of generations. But one of those handy points of agreements between traditional and modern sources is that Pliny was wrong about that. At best, these divisions had been around since Moses, which was a while ago in our narrative, but a generation is a long time, or at a few dozen generations rather than thousands. And it's very likely that these divisions properly sprang up after the exile, rather than there being Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes quarreling among themselves in, say, the court of Solomon. So much for when they started quarreling. What were they quarreling about? Well, you could do worse, though not much worse, I'm sure, than to think of the Pharisees as analogous to the Catholic-slash-Orthodox Christian view of Scripture plus tradition. For, you see, traditionally, the Pharisees believed that in addition to the written Torah, that is, the first five books of the Bible, a.k.a. the Pentateuch, in addition to that, the Pharisees believed that on Mount Sinai, Moses was also given an oral Torah, i.e., teachings that weren't written down at the time, but which were nevertheless binding. In this view, which is adopted by mainstream Judaism today as I understand it, the old Torah was passed down verbally in an unbroken chain from the time of Moses until it was written down around 200 AD, primarily in what's known as the Mishnah, and then later the Gemara. We won't be going into those texts because this oral Torah business won't carry directly over into Christianity, but as I mentioned, this can be seen as somewhat analogous to the Catholic and Orthodox acceptance of ancient tradition as an authoritative source that can supplement and enhance our understanding of the Bible, aka sacred scripture. But in both Judaism and Christianity, there are those who reject this idea of going beyond the sacred texts. In Christianity, mainline Protestants have a perspective called sola scriptura, that's Latin for scripture alone, and in Judaism, the second major school of the Second Temple period, the Sadducees similarly rejected the idea that there was more to be known than was in the Holy Texts. Instead, they tended to favor, don't go too far with the analogy, but it's there, a literalist interpretation of the Torah. Kind of a fundamentalist approach. Now, when I say don't go too far with this, you know, Catholic Orthodox Protestant analogy for 
Pharisee, Sadducee, and Essene, I do mean that. For example, the Sadducees also didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't find it in the Torah. Now, yes, we did see the resurrection of the dead pop up recently when we were talking about 2nd Maccabees, but as a reminder, the Torah is just the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you aren't looking there, according to the Sadducees, you're looking in the wrong place. Suffice to say, the seven sons described in 2nd Maccabees must not have been Sadducees, going on about resurrection like they did. So, once again, in a very tight nutshell, so far we've got the Pharisees, who are pro-oral Torah, scripture plus tradition type approach, as well as pro-resurrection. Then we've got the Sadducees, who are anti-oral Torah, sola scriptura type, that is scripture only, and therefore they are anti-resurrection. Now, when it came to the Hasmoneans, the Pharisees hated them because they saw them as usurpers. They weren't from the house of David, so they couldn't be legitimate kings of Israel. The Sadducees, meanwhile, hated them because they also saw them as usurpers, not because of the monarchy, but because of the high priesthood, an office they claimed to hold despite not being descended from the Zadokite line. Zadok, as a reminder, being the high priest who had crowned David. Now, what about the Essenes? At least at the time I was writing up these notes, JewishVirtualLibrary.org said it better than I ever could hope to. Quote, A third faction, the Essenes, emerged out of disgust with the other two. End quote. Even with this disgust, as near as we can tell, the Essenes agreed with both the Pharisees and the Sadducees on one thing. They didn't like the Hasmoneans. There's a theory that the founder of the Essenes, a fellow known as the Teacher of Righteousness, was actually kicked out of that office by Jonathan, the first Hasmonean to claim the High Priesthood. Which, if true, would certainly explain their particular dislike for the Hasmoneans. Now, all this stuff about the Essenes definitely falls into the category of unsubstantiated and contested theory. So, take this section in that spirit with a grain of salt. It's just too interesting for me to pass up completely, though. Setting aside the question of whatever be it was that got into the bonnet of the Essenes and kicked things off, the Essenes, disgusted by whatever, split off and lived in ascetic and generally celibate communities a situation understandably compared to later Christian monasteries. Scholars generally tend to agree that one such community was located at Qumran, along the northern shore of the Dead Sea in the West Bank, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls started popping up shortly after the Second World War. We'll cover those in more detail at some point, but for today just know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were a library that was active from the 4th century BC through the first century AD. So yes, it seems those scrolls may have been left behind by an Essene community, and one that showed Gnostic leanings as well. And Gnosticism is a very rich topic, but it's one for another day. We'll see the Pharisees and the Sadducees pop up again here and there in the New Testament, as they interact with Jesus, and as the Pharisee Paul converts and then actually writes much of the New Testament. But the Essenes don't get any such nod. Which is interesting, because according to Josephus, there were lots of them. Quote, 
many of them dwell in every city. End quote. To add another layer of mystery, we know the basic fate of the Pharisees, they gradually developed into modern rabbinic Judaism, and we know the general fate of the Sadducees, they collapsed not long after the loss of the temple that was so central to their practice. The temple was very central to them, and without it, it really hurt their movement. But the Essenes, who were evidently numerous in Josephus' day, vanish. Or do they? Dun, dun, dun! Many of the practices of the Essenes also appear in early Christianity, including, for example, holding property in common, as it described in the Book of Acts. John the Baptist, in particular, is often seen as potentially connected to the Essenes, but it's worth noting that most of the quote-unquote analysis of the potential connection between John the Baptist and the Essenes has about the same level of scholarly merit as an analysis of King Arthur's court would. The idea that the Essenes turned into Christians is interesting, and it's clear that many folks want it to be true. But clear evidence is just lacking. Many of the common elements the early Christians and the Essenes had in common weren't by any means unique. But really, I'm getting ahead of myself with all that. We're still a century away from John the Baptist. So let's get back to the Hasmoneans. Now to recap where we'd left things, in 104, Judas Aristobulus had succeeded his father as the high priest, while his mother took charge of the somethingdom, at least in theory. In actuality, we're told Judas Aristobulus locked his mother up and starved her to death. It... Now, Judas Aristobulus was both Hasmonean leader and high priest, so he went ahead and upgraded the status of the Hasmonean somethingdom to the proper Hasmonean kingdom, a change which, as a reminder, particularly irked the Pharisees who saw it as a usurpation and which could have possibly influenced Josephus's view of him since Josephus was himself a Pharisee. And that's important because Josephus is really the only written account we have here, so we're relying on him like previous generations did. But that means do remember to take some salt with all of this starving his mother and such business and what we're going to get into here. After consolidating internally, Aristobulus found time to expand externally in Etruria, but not much time because his health had started going downhill. His was a short reign. Less than a year, even though we've seen it was a pretty eventful reign. According to Josephus, Aristobulus's wife, Alexandra, was thinking of succession before he was. When he had taken charge and locked away his mother, Aristobulus had also locked up most of his brothers as well, except for Antigonus, the next oldest brother after him and his likely successor. But, according to Josephus, Alexandra didn't really like her chances under Antigonus, so she worked to turn Aristobulus against him. She successfully had the heir Antigonus executed before the ailing Aristobulus died. She then freed and married the next brother up, Alexander Janius, who, for what it's worth, had a good, long, relatively stable reign, so I promise things will calm down for a bit so we can all take a breath. Because, wow, that was a wild couple of years. By the way, Far from being surprising, Alexander Janius marrying his brother's wife was perhaps to be expected. It seemed to be an example of a Leverite marriage, where a younger brother is expected to marry the childless widow of a deceased older brother. This same 
basic dynamic is what drove the plot of the Book of Ruth, where the widow Ruth had to look a ways to find Boaz, the next of kin of her deceased husband. Say what you will, and there's plenty to say, this practice of Leverite marriage gave some degree of protection to widowed women in patriarchal tribal societies where they were expected to be in the care of a man. Gone from their father by their marriage, and gone from their husband by their death, the idea was that the husband's brother, or in Ruth's case, the next of kin, would carry on the line in his behalf, and incidentally also give her a space to exist in a very much patriarchal society where women existing independently was crazy talk. Now, you might keep that very much patriarchal society part in mind here when considering this whole account. The description of Alexandra as the evil source of Aristobulus's decision to murder his brother checks a lot of boxes for the misogynistic trope of scheming wicked women turning men who are naturally brothers, well, literally brothers, against one another. On the other hand, sure, such things happen, so maybe that's exactly how it went down. In any case, we'll stop with Alexandra's story there for the moment, but as it happens, we're definitely not done with Alexandra. More fully, she is Salome Alexandra, by the way, not to be confused with the later Salome who shows up in the New Testament asking for the head of John the Baptist. We'll get there soon enough, folks. For now, we've got 27 years worth of Alexander Janaeus. Things apparently got off to a bit of a rocky start when one of Alexander's two surviving brothers apparently sought the throne. Oh, but never mind all that, because I just checked again, and now it looks like Alexander's getting along very well with his unambitious and quiet one surviving brother. His other one just, you know, disappeared. So Alexander, that's a good Hebrew name, that. I'm surprised to see that pop up for a grandson of the Maccabees. Anyways, Alexander's first attempt at conquest was to head up onto the city of Acre in modern-day northern Israel. Incidentally, yes, this was the same Acre that would eventually be the last city in the Holy Land held by the Crusaders. But we're still a thousand years before the Crusaders, and at this point, Alexander Janaeus was opposed by King Ptolemy IX, Sodor II, who I'm partially mentioning because of his ridiculous name. You see, the Ptolemies of Egypt were extremely uncreative with their names, going through a total of 15 Ptolemies, from the founder of the dynasty to the son of Julius Caesar, Ptolemy XV, better known as Caesarian. All the Ptolemies had some sort of nickname to help differentiate them, much like what we saw with Antiochus IV Epiphanes at the time of the Maccabees. But there were just so darn many of them. Even the extra nicknames got duplicated a couple of times. Ptolemy the Ninth Soter II actually shared the Soter epitaph, that meaning savior, with Ptolemy I. I'm actually going to go ahead and decree that to eliminate any confusion, Ptolemy I shall no longer be known as Ptolemy I Soter, but as Ptolemy I OG. I expect all future historians to heed my wisdom. Incidentally, there is also a Pope Soter, who doesn't do a ton we know about, but he was the 12th Pope for what it's worth. But 
Anyways, we do need to get back to the topic of why on earth one of the Ptolemies of Egypt is interfering in northern Israel. After all, wouldn't southern Israel be more their wheelhouse? Well, not quite. Sure, southern Israel was closer to Egypt proper, but in reality the rulers of Egypt were quite accustomed to interfering with, and indeed governing, all over modern Israel by this point. Canaan, as it was known at the time of the patriarchs, was well within Egyptian orbit during the age of the patriarchs. That's early history for the Israelites, to be sure. But by that time, Egypt was already well over a thousand years old, and on its 19th dynasty. Impressed? I know I am. Further, the whole of Israel had also been under Egyptian control more recently as well. After Alexander the Great, Judea had actually gone to Ptolemaic Egypt, ending up in the hands of the Seleucids in 195, just one generation before the Maccabees started bucking the Greeks generally in 167. In fact, one sign of this was fairly clear. The city of Acre, that Ptolemy IX was protecting against Alexander, was actually called Ptolemaeus at the time. Oh, and one more thing. Ptolemy IX, Soter II, was actually operating out of Cyprus at this point. His mother and his younger brother had kicked him out of Egypt proper, and, well, his story is all quite complicated, but long story short, fighting Ptolemy IX soon meant also fighting Ptolemy's mother, Cleopatra III, not that Cleopatra, and also his brother, Ptolemy X, Alexander I, which, again, yes, that's the name of one dude, even though it sounds like two, complete with two regnal numbers. Seriously, the Ptolemies especially are a mess. If you want a proper dive into the rest of the post-Alexander Greek world, check out the Hellenistic Age podcast by my man, Derek, who I want to take a moment to thank for helping clarify the status of Judea and the surrounding area at the time, then called Sili Syria, which he did not help me on the pronunciation, so that's all my own. In any case, like I said, it's all a bit of a mess. For instance, there were no less than six, quote, Syrian wars, end quote, between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies over the control of Sili Syria. That particular series of wars was over by this point, but that didn't mean the participants were unable to influence the region, as Alexander Janaeus learned the hard way when he was stirring up Ptolemy IX, Soter II, which resulted in the northern half of his kingdom getting absolutely wrecked, up until the previously mentioned mother and younger brother, heard what Ptolemy IX Soter II was up to, and they stormed up from Egypt to put him in his place, which they very quickly did. In the end, Alexander basically had to beg Cleopatra and her son Ptolemy, not that Cleopatra and her son Ptolemy, to keep his kingdom. Fortunately for him, there was apparently a reasonably substantial Jewish population in Egypt proper that Cleopatra in particular needed to keep in her corner. Fortunately for Alexander Janaeus, that Jewish population was opposed to her annexing Judea, so she didn't. She just made Alexander pinky promise not to try any further expansion. Fortunately for Alexander's ambitions, this deal only ended up lasting a few years, since soon enough Cleopatra had died, and apparently her son Ptolemy X couldn't be bothered keeping him in check. I honestly couldn't find anything that made sense to explain the shift, but within a few years of Cleopatra's death, Alexander had actually taken much of the modern Gaza Strip, 
in addition to some chunks of territory across the Jordan River in modern, well, uh, Jordan. Now, this may be a bit surprising, but uh, these victories and territorial expansion were actually followed by a civil war, because tensions that had been brewing between the Pharisees and the Hasmonean rulers finally boiled over. Really, the Pharisees had nearly revolted against Alexander's brother when he'd originally declared himself king. Uh, keep in mind the Pharisees saw a king not from the line of David as a usurper, but they hadn't really had time to get around to revolting at that point since their brother had croaked in under a year. But Alexander gave them plenty of time and motivation. But really, the hatred was mutual, because not only did the Pharisees not appreciate Alexander's status as a high priest, they also saw him as unfit for the office of high priest because his mother had allegedly been raped. Now, I know there are problems with making value judgments about cultural practices, but frankly, there are also problems with seeing your mother being raped as something that causes you to be unacceptable to serve as a priest. Understandably, Alexander was decidedly not happy with this view, and in response, he was soon going pretty well out of his way to goad the Pharisees at every convenient opportunity. Soon, the situation devolved into the civil war I mentioned. Now, the rebels recruited the help of the still-hanging-around Seleucids, and for once, I won't even bother you with their current leader's name. We've already had plenty of names for this episode, especially after the Ptolemies. According to Josephus, Alexander actually loses in a close fight, but enough of the rebelling Jews start to feel bad for Alexander and switch back to his side that the Seleucid king decides it isn't worth staying involved in all of this, so he just hops off back home. The remaining rebels, at least 800 of them, were taken back to Jerusalem and were crucified. Yes, this certainly was a common punishment of the day, and yes, we'll be seeing it again. If you missed the Roman episodes, we did talk about crucifixion there too. It is all over the place at this time. Now technically, Alexander does use the last chunk of his reign to expand the kingdom further into the Transjordan area in, yes, modern-day Jordan, but there isn't much more to say about that except that Alexander actually dies in that area while besieging a city fairly deep into the Jordanian side of things. Now his wife, Queen Alexandra, initially kept her husband's death a secret, carrying on with that siege as usual until the city was taken. When it fell, it was basically the military high watermark of her reign. She tried her hand at conquest, sending one of her sons off to besiege Damascus, but nothing really came from that. And in fact, her reign, Queen Alexandra's, was the overall high watermark of the whole dang Hasmonean kingdom. From her ascension in 76 or 75 until her death in 67, though the kingdom didn't expand, it didn't lose any ground either, and the unrest we saw under her husband Alexander was thoroughly put to rest. In no small part, I imagine, because the main opposition internally had been the Pharisees, and the most influential Pharisee at the time was one Simeon ben Shetrach, who, as it happens, was Queen Alexandra's brother. She plopped him into the Sanhedrin, such as it was at the time. I say such as it was because several of the places I checked indicated that Alexandra, or perhaps her late husband Alexander, had actually founded the Sanhedrin. But that seems to fall into the modern view kind of category, 
From what I can tell, the traditional view is that the Sanhedrin, basically Jewish High Council, existed for the whole Second Temple period. And you know how I love going with traditional views when it's a bit of a coin flip. Because for most of the popes we're talking about, they love traditional views, so we'll generally let our pope-colored glasses reflect that. So we'll go with the traditional view. That's a pre-existing Sanhedrin that was filled with Sadducees. But Alexandra and Simeon soon changed all that, including calling back Pharisees who had fled Egypt when things had really gone south for them under Alexander. Soon, it was the Sadducees who were in the minority, and when they came to Alexandra looking for relief, she saw them off from Jerusalem, allowing them to hang out in other fortified towns, but trying to keep things quiet in the capital. Overall, despite a rocky start with that bit about manipulating her husband into killing his innocent brother way back when, Queen Alexandra gets the kind of review from later sources, all of them Pharisees or descendants of Pharisees, that you might expect from the woman who really turned things around for the Pharisees and put them in the driver's seat. It's favorable stuff. According to the Mishnah, that first round of that written-down oral Torah the Pharisees liked and the Sadducees hated, in Queen Alexandra's day, quote, rain invariably fell for them on Wednesday eves and on Shabbat eves, until wheat grew as big as kidneys, and barley as big as olive pits, and lentils as golden dinars, end quote. The Shabbat eve rain in particular was handy. In addition to being a guard against drought and therefore famine, which was already helped by the fact that the crops were apparently giant, a Shabbat rain meant that no working days were missed due to the Shabbat rest, so no catch-up time was needed. All very handy, kind of playing into the idea that, you know, when you've got a just ruler, the land prospers. Unfortunately, Alexandra is now in her mid-70s. It's been a long time since she talked one brother into killing another and then succeeded her dead husband after his long reign. Anyways, it's time for her to go the way of all flesh. She is succeeded by her son, and things do not go well from here. Now, I do think it's interesting that she took the throne herself instead of one of her children taking over as the successor to her dead husband, Alexander. I mean, up until that point, the Judeans had shown a definite preference for male rulers that was in line with their neighbors. The only other queen regnant we've seen at pretty much all of Israelite history was Athaliah over 700 years ago, who had in fact been passed up by her adult son, but was preferred to her two-year-old grandson when that son had died not long into his reign. But Alexandra's sons weren't children. We don't have a note of her age here, but biologically, they were definitely both adults by the standards of the age when their father died, since at that point, she was in her mid-sixties herself. Now, we could certainly craft some theories with little or no evidence here, but in the end, Alexandra definitely reigned after her husband died, and her adult sons were left to wait until she had died herself. Well, mostly. There was at least one role Alexander had filled that Alexandra wasn't eligible for, that of high priest. That role she did allow to go to her oldest son, John Hyrcanus, who, when she died, would go on to become king as John Hyrcanus II. But John's younger brother, Aristobulus, thought maybe he should be king, and he allied with the disillusioned Sadducees, launching another proper civil war. There was some back and forth, with John Hyrcanus II thoroughly on the ropes by 63 BC, 
But uh, holy crap, what's that? Pompey is what that is. Pompey the Great. Now, Pompey the Great had just annexed the kingdom of Pontus from King Mithridates, that uh, greatest opponent that Rome had seen since Hannibal. Pompey the Great, this is the same Pompey who had just polished off and also annexed the Seleucids. Pompey the Great, who had suddenly taken a keen interest in the Hasmoneans, already being in the area thanks to these conquests, and he just happened to follow along with the standard divide-and-conquer script of Roman expansionism. When the Romans saw a civil war, that was blood in the water. Long story short, surprise, surprise, things played out how Pompey wanted them to play out. Before that fateful year of 63 BC was out, Pompey himself was standing in the Holy of Holies, thereby desecrating it and demonstrating his complete control of the situation. He touched nothing of the wealth within, and the next day he ordered the temple be purified and that regular worship resume. His point was made. The Hasmonean kingdom became a Roman client state. Now this all worked out well enough for John Hyrcanus, who, coming back from a near total defeat, very quickly ended up back as the high priest and on good terms with Rome, by far the most formidable force in the Mediterranean world at this time. But he wasn't John Hyrcanus II anymore, because the throne, which had been the dispute that drew in Pompey and the Romans in the first place, went to neither of the original claimants. Instead, the new ruler of Judea was to be Antipater the Idumean, an official who had shown himself a capable administrator and a firm friend of Rome. And I can't help but point out that the Idumean identifier means he was from what once had been called Edom. Again, those red stew folk popping off again. Now, not long after Pompey died in 48, Julius Caesar granted our now long-serving high priest John Hyrcanus the title of Ethnarch for the Judeans. This gave him more political power, but it was far from the autonomy he'd once had. It would be just shy of 2,000 years before there were truly autonomous Jewish leaders in Jerusalem again. In any event, if I'm understanding things correctly, John Hyrcanus was subordinate to Antipater the Idumean, at least until the latter's death in 41. Now, if Hyrcanus did get to run things after Antipater's death, and it's not clear, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but if he did, that freedom didn't last long at all. The very next year, the Parthians invaded Roman Judea and set up his nephew, Antigonus II Mattathias, the son of Hyrcanus's now-deceased brother Aristobulus, as the last Hasmonean king, and also as high priest. At this point, Hyrcanus's ears were mutilated, which, according to custom, made him ineligible to serve as high priest. Poor John. Of course, the Romans were not about to stand by and let this Parthian puppet situation stand. Antipater's son stormed onto the scene, and with Roman support he took control, officially putting an end to the Hasmoneans, and placing his bottom firmly on the Judean throne. The Edomites were in charge. Antigonus II, that Parthian puppet, was either beheaded or crucified, depending on who you ask. In any event, he was dead now, and like I mentioned, he was succeeded by Antipater's son, a man who would go down in history as King Herod the Great, who ruled what was eventually known as the Herodian Kingdom of Judea. 
Now, Herod is a name many will recognize, which is why I kept from naming him for a bit there to set up a bit of a reveal. He's the sort of figure one might introduce at the end of an episode like this and then spend the whole next episode on, but I don't really want to do that because we're right on the verge of an even greater transition than the Hasmonean to the Herodian kingdom. This is the last time our narrative will be Jewish history. Starting with the next episode, we'll be starting to move from the First Testament to the Second, and our themes and stories will become distinctly Christian. Politically, Herod spans that gap. In a distinctly Jewish contribution, it's Herod who restores and greatly expands the Second Temple, including forming the Temple Mount, which is mostly what we still have left of the Temple. The Western Wall, or the Wailing Wall, one of the few pieces of the Temple left standing to this day, that's another artifact of Herod's Temple. On the Christian end of things, well, we'll get back to that in a couple of episodes when we circle back to Herod after talking about Mary next episode. Now, King Herod did try for some continuity with the Hasmoneans. He married the Hasmonean princess Mariamne, the granddaughter of both John Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus, Alexandra's sons whose quarreling had drawn in Pompey's intervention a generation ago at this point. And if you smell incest, given that her grandparents were brothers, well, you're right. That's royalty for you. Now, Herod's long reign had its challenges, but with the not-so-secret sauce of Roman support, he was able to keep things stable, despite the various frustrations he caused all the factions, ending up fairly unpopular among all the locals as the price of his continued courting the support of the distant Romans. Now, unfortunately for Herod, it wasn't always as simple as just supporting the Romans and you'll be fine. After all, what does supporting the Romans mean when the Romans themselves were having a civil war and they had plenty? He had to pick sides. He went with the locally more powerful side, that man named Mark Antony, the husband of the reigning pharaoh of Egypt, Cleopatra VII, yes, that Cleopatra. Unfortunately for Herod, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, as we found out last week, would wind up dead, and their rival, a man named Octavian, ends up the undisputed ruler of the Roman Republic that was rapidly transitioning into the Roman Empire. Later, but not much later, as we saw, Octavian became known as Caesar Augustus, a man who would get his own mention in the New Testament. Now, the fact that choosing the wrong side in the Civil War wasn't the end for Herod says something about his political capabilities. But being politically capable and being virtuous are two quite different things, as we'll see. Especially later in his reign, Herod was known for being something of a tyrant. He had Mariamne, that Hasmonean princess he had married, executed in 29, and her sons executed in 7. And yes, the year counts are getting really low. We're a few minutes to midnight in the big countdown to Jesus. And actually, it's time to go ahead and leave things here. We'll pick things up next time with uh, Mary on an overview episode, and then we'll start going into the New Testament proper, where Herod the Great makes a rather notorious appearance with an execution order of a much greater magnitude than those given in connection to his wife and children. So we'll see you next time for episode Ot.14, Something About Mary. Then, after that, we'll have episode Ot.15, 
with Herod making his triumphant return in an episode called The Whole World Being at Peace. Which, given the teaser tidbit I just gave, is a bit of an ironic title, but eh, say la vie. Oh, of course, before I go, I do want to thank Billy for all the audio support and for our theme, uh, Russ for our logo, and of course, Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History, for all her patience and uh, support. Thank you all. God bless.